Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today is another Exmo Book Club episode. This is part two of the discussion on No Man Knows My History, covering chapters 8 through 14. Thanks for coming back to another episode. Today is a continuation of the discussion that we had about a month ago on No Man Knows My History. If you were with us last time, I had a wonderful guest with me and she is returning again today. Welcome back to the show, Julia. Hi. It's going great. It's good to have you back. Yeah, it's good to be back. The first time that we met, we went over chapters one through seven of No Man Knows My History. And in this this chunk of our our book review, we're going to go over chapters 8 through 14. I think we should just jump right into this. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) For those that missed the first section, go back and listen. It uh, it, it covers the beginning of the movement clear, basically through the Kirtland time period. And chapter 8 jumps off right around there. And uh, there's a lot that we're going to cover in here. Chapter 8, we're going to kick this off. This one was called Temple Builder. In this one, the way uh, Brody presented chapter eight, it was a shift in the mentality from like a small town preacher to a more like grander prophet on like a much bigger scale. And um, this culminated. So in this time period, Joseph Smith was designing a city with 12 temples and he just had these these big schemes that he was going uh, that he was trying to uh, bring forward. And there, there's a lot of interesting things in this chapter. In this time period, Edward Partridge, who uh, prior to this had been g- given control of the United Order, he was he was upset with some of the land independence. This is from an article in, in the Ohio Star where Elder, uh, Edward Partridge says this, and he's talking about Joseph Smith and, and his uh, selection of the land. He says, I wish you not to tell us any more that you know these things by the spirit when you do not. You told us that Oliver had raised up a large church here, and there is no such thing. And uh, Joseph Smith's response to him was, I see it, and it will be so. It was the beginning of this schism where some of the people that had followed Joseph Smith, they were paying attention to the prophecies and the declarations that he was making, and they were realizing that they weren't all coming to pass the way that he had said. Interestingly, Doctrine and Covenants section 72, in this time period, Joseph Smith is accruing a lot of debts. He's buying land in the name of the church. Looking back, it's really suspicious, but as a believer, I didn't even think twice about some of these things, but he, through revelation, is passing off the debt of the church to the members. I mean, it just kind of blows me away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. You were saying that that uh, jumped out at you, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wrote it down. Yeah, the bishop was supposed to pay all the debts himself. And it says it in Doctrine and Covenants. It says that when we're commanded to pay tithing, that we do it to pay off the debts of the leaders of the church. Which, yeah, that's, you know, you don't notice those things as a member. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, because um, just by that definition from the Doctrine and Covenants, we shouldn't be paying tithing anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the things that um, Brody mentions in this chapter, and I, she talks about the revelations that Joseph Smith is having. And she says that all of Joseph Smith's revelations sprang from mundane crises rather than the promptings of the Lord. It's 117 right in the middle. I, I highlighted that too. It says in this single year, 1831, he wrote three times as many in the last 10 years of his life. She kind of is saying the same thing though, where he's writing more than. Mm-hmm. He's writing a lot more, but it seems to be reactionary. Like everything that's that he's saying is reacting to the world around him rather than um, any sort of prophesying. And she has that theme throughout the, the rest of these chapters where he, he writes yes. in response. Ezra Booth, who was disaffected from the church, I believe, he said that all of Joseph Smith's revelations sprang out of the mundane crises rather than the promptings of the Lord. And that was from a letter that he wrote to the Ohio Star. And so th- those at the time, they were noticing that like everything that came from the Lord was in reaction to what was happening around Joseph Smith. 
Mm-hmm. So, and this was also the time period of the the first time that he was like brought out and tarred and feathered. I just think as as an active member, you see you hear about these mobs and you see them depicted in the films like he gets tarred and feathered, but you don't really know why. But here it's showing that it's because of his advances on Miranda or Nancy Miranda. Yes. And they bring the doctor. Yeah, they like bring the doctor with them. Simon's writers there and the doctors there. Like, it's just you just see it better in this book than you do in church history. Well, and then it's it's interesting because Nancy Miranda Johnson, uh, Joseph Smith was living with them at the time. And that's when these um, allegations first came out. The same woman, she later marries Orson Hyde and becomes a plural wife of Joseph Smith down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The same Nancy Miranda. When you put all the, the pieces together, it paints a much different picture than what I thought um, while in the church. This is off topic, but have you seen Under the Banner of Heaven yet? I have been watching. Yes. Oh, man. So good. I like that they show this. They show the re- kind of the reasons the mob is doing this. They did. Yeah. And they actually they depicted the the doctor who decided against going through with the castration. Right. They took some liberties, some creative liberties. They showed, you mm-hmm. know, uh, a verbal exchange between Joseph and the doctor. Right. Which probably didn't happen. I also think it's interesting. She talks about how she says a glass vial was forced in between his mouth and it was crushed between his teeth. And he talked with a whistle the rest of his life. Also, he had a limp from before when he was a kid. And those are never depicted. Like, I never think of Joseph as having a whistle or a limp. It is interesting. Yeah, because you don't see him depicted that way. He's depicted as handsome and charming, which he he was. But they they don't show uh, the whistle or the limp. So also in this time period, the church went away from the United Order. And those that were becoming disaffected and leaving, they started suing the church to try and get their money back. It's interesting to see the things you highlight and the things that I highlight, because they're often we just have different brains. So, <laughs> yeah, the, the only other thing from Chapter eight that that stood out to me and feel free to jump in with anything else. But it, it was uh, Brody portrayed the Civil War prophecy that Joseph Smith made at this time period. And she. She depicted how the world looked at the time. And it's something that, you know, many podcasts, many people have discussed, but it was it was written on the walls well before. And a lot of people had said it published in a lot of different places. It's interesting. So a lot of a lot of apologists see this as a bullseye. When you read the prophecy, it didn't come to pass the way Joseph Smith said. He only had a couple of hits in there on what he said. Um, It was supposed to lead to uh, the second coming. It says that South Carolina, 30 years before the Civil War, threatened to split with the United States because Joseph prophesied that it would start in in South Carolina, which which they already knew that that was old news. So that's all I got for Chapter eight, the preparation for the temple and kind of the disillusionment of the uh, United Order. Is there anything else that you wanted to go over on Chapter eight? No, I think that was it. I think that was good. For chapter nine, this one, this one covered a lot of the persecution from the Independence, Missouri time period. I feel like Brody was really fair. I think I feel like she portrayed it as as really negative to the members of the church because it was it was a lot of this persecution, whatever the motivation was, um, just really wasn't fair to the members of the church in that time period. And that's kind of the way that she portrayed it. Also, in this chapter, she covered uh, some of Joseph Smith's motives for moving away from the United Order. It, this was probably one of the darkest times for the church where it easily could have collapsed and never turned into the movement that it is today. She talked a lot about Andrew Jackson and the his kind of involvement with the church, which I, I didn't know any of that. Like I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know any of that either. One thing that shocked me, I don't know if you're ready to go here yet, but on page 141, they're talking about different like deeding the land to the brethren. And in the Doctrine and Covenants, I had no idea, but he's changing everyone's names so that it's. Yeah, so they can, he can deed them land without the members knowing. This was fascinating. So, so when they dissolved the United Order and you know, they weren't having all things in common, they had to do something with the ownership of all of the land and the, you know, the printing press and all of the different properties that the church owned at the time. For better or worse, they just doled it out to the leaders of the church and deeded everything to those that were in power in the organization. But in order to, to to not draw too much suspicion, like you said, he put you know fictitious names for everybody that he deeded these these properties to. 
I really love her last sentence where she says, Joseph's kingdom, unlike that of Jesus, was unmistakably of this world. She's very cutting with her analysis on a lot of this stuff. One of the things that stood out to me and kind of my, my biggest takeaway from this chapter, because it dealt a lot with the finances and how the, the church was operated at the time, was that from the beginning, the church members and the pardon me, the, the leaders of the church managed the finances and the property of the members. And it doesn't feel like anything has changed today. Was there anything else on chapter nine? I feel like we're burning through some of these. Yeah, that's true. Like I, this one just had a lot of the meteor shower was really interesting to me. I can't remember very much about it other than it was just she just says it's the greatest meteor showers in the century. Oh, yeah. I've seen paintings of it. Like it is. Man, it's one of those moments in history that I just you just wish you could go back oh, yeah. and be there to witness. I mean, it sounds just beautiful. This is totally off topic, but I love taking my kids to to places where we can watch the Perseids every year and, you know, go and watch the meteor showers in August. It's it's a lot of fun. I, I love um, astronomy stuff. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's fun. If there's nothing else, we can jump on to chapter 10. This one was a short chapter, but it was a really interesting one. Hurlbut, who we mentioned in the previous episode, um, and for those that aren't going to go back and listen, <laughs> he was the one that went around collecting affidavits for uh, about Joseph Smith. And we talked about it briefly in the last episode, but this is where that event actually took place. So he was excommunicated, <laughs> interestingly, and this is right off the bat in chapter 10. He was excommunicated for unchristian conduct with the ladies. <laughs> There's some irony there. There's some real irony there. Philastus Hurlbut was executed in 1833. And this is the guy that went around collecting all of the affidavits, but the, he actually didn't publish them. And uh, this was, I think this was where some of the confusion when we were talking last time is because I thought he had published them. Yes, I noticed that. Apparently his name was tarnished because of his digging through and he actually gave them to his publisher. He sells, he sells his manuscript to Edie Howe for $500. The tactics that the leaders of the church used when Hurlbut's, uh, when Mormonism, E.D. Howe's Mormonism Unveiled came out was ad hominem. And Rigdon basically drug Philastus Hurlbut's name through the mud in order to attack the documents that were that were coming out. Yes. Yeah. So he sells it to E.D. Howe because it wouldn't have been taken seriously if it were done under his name. And so E.D. Howe publishes all of the uh the work that Hurlbut had done getting these affidavits. Yeah, I wish he'd have said that earlier because that's why I was like, I think I corrected you last time and I I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know it either. And until I got to this chapter, I had just I thought that Hurlbut had done it. And now we now we've got to the answer. Yeah. <laughs> but so in, in 1833, he spent two months in Palmyra um, just collecting affidavits, interviewing people that knew Joseph Smith, the substance of their stories, according to uh, Brody was really devastating to the character of Joseph Smith. And I I hope that that some of those are in the appendix, because I, I really want to read some of those stories about him from when he was a kid. I, I just think that would be fascinating. Well, and Mormonism Unveiled is available in archives in the website. So you can just access the whole book there. But I think another I think another thing that Hurlbut was trying to do is to gather all those negative things, but also to show that he had plagiarized from the Solomon Spaulding manuscript. I don't remember where he got the idea for Spaulding, but he he investigated this and eventually came up with nothing compelling and kind of put it aside and left it out of the manuscript. Right. Yeah, it was a big and I know some people try to still push that theory. I've read the manuscript found and it, it reads it reads more like an Edgar Rice Burroughs book. Like it's just this love triangle. It's 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 <laughs> it's not nearly as good as the Book of Mormon. And I'm learning more about the Book of Mormon. And even that's not that impressive. So one of the other things in this time period, 1834, I think, um, and this is on page uh, 144, Martin Harris, apparently he made a claim about Joseph Smith that he was forced to recant. So Martin Harris got drunk and he's um, in the bar talking to a friend and he tells this person uh, the unnamed in Brody's book, but he tells them that Joseph Smith was drunk when he was translating the book of Mormon on occasion. And apparently word got around the town and it became a whole hubbub. He actually had to publish 
basically he had to recant his story and publish that in the times and seasons. And that's in uh, times and seasons, volume six, page nine ninety two. I haven't read that. Hopefully it's in the appendix, but it's uh, whether true or not. It's interesting. I, I love later when she talks about the word of wisdom. Was that this one or was that next one? No, it was in the next one. I just love, I just think it's funny. Joseph's relationship with the word of wisdom. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because there's, it's, it's interesting. And, and I think, and maybe this is going ahead of where we are, but Brody explains it as something that got out of hand or in, evolved into something that he didn't plan. The other part of this, they go into the whole Zion's camp story. And there was a lot of information in there that I just knew nothing about. Uh, chapter 10 was largely about Zion's camp. It talked about this interesting dynamic of Joseph Smith basically hiding among the people there, going under the you know, uh, pseudonym of Captain Cook, talked about some heated um, disagreements with Sylvester Smith and some other people, his dog that nobody liked. Like it was, it was interesting to hear the story from a more uh, real perspective. This was a really hard time for the church. One of the things that... Brody says in describing this whole time period, after everything went down here with science camp, Joseph Smith stopped saying, thus saith the Lord, as often as he used to. And from then on, it was more revelations through his sermons, and, and it altered the way that he led the church in really interesting ways. Battle almost broke out between those in Zion's camp and the people of the area. Um, but and this is how the story goes, but it, it rained like really hard. It was hailing. And that was the only reason that a fight didn't break out. Joseph Smith proclaimed that God was in the thunderstorm and protecting them. It's interesting that we haven't heard some of these because they're not all negative. Mm-hmm. A lot of these stories you could tell with a really you know, spiritual and uplifting light. Maybe it's just that they don't want people digging into it. So one thing that I think is interesting on Zion's camp, they... They find this um, this man named Zelf and Joseph calls him a white Lamanite. Yeah. Yeah. And he says that he's under the prophet, under the great prophet Onondagas. But if you know anything about the Indians in New York, Joseph Smith, where he lived, he was right next to the Onondaga Indians. So that doesn't I mean, like it's the same name. So I don't I don't know. I just think that's interesting. Perhaps, you know, whether he believed what uh, believed in what he was saying or not. Perhaps he assumed that based on the geography, that it was the ancestors of the Onondagas people. And that's why he, you know, gave it the name of Onondagas. When you read these stories and read the words of the early uh, leaders of the church, it's pretty clear that the setting for the Book of Mormon was in upstate New York and like in the Americas. Exactly. Very much. Was there anything else on chapter 10 that you wanted to to go over? I like that she says that she says Joseph had always been fascinated by military lore, which perhaps accounted for the innumerable innumerable battles in the Book of Mormon. She says he carried a rifle, embraced pistols. Uh, She had an elegant brace of pistols and he had the best sword. So I I don't ever picture Joseph having weapons. Yeah. Like I've been to the Nauvoo Temple and there's a there's a portrait of him with a sword. And I don't like that's not the kind of Joseph I envision. And and I don't know that he would have walked around with a sword later on in his career in the 1840s. Right. But it was probably something common in this time period, you know, in, in the Zion's camp, the, you know, 1834, 1835 time period. Oh, one other story from the Zion's camp time period. They had a cholera breakout after the rain. And this was, again, part of the motivation to, to end the whole thing. A lot of people were getting sick and they were asking Joseph Smith to heal them. His response to this was different than it was when he was asked to raise the little girl from the dead from our previous uh, discussion. Um, I can't remember her name. So this time around, he said that if he had tried to cure it, that God would have killed him because it was against what God wanted. I think it's fascinating. And I tend to be in the camp that, that he was a believer, that he, the part of him believed in the things that he was saying. This might be, this is purely my opinion. This might be, him trying to justify an inability to affect miracles sometimes where he's trying to reason it out in his head. And I mean, if I'm a believer, things aren't happening the way I thought that would be a conclusion that you could easily come to. 
So the next chapter is chapter 11, Patronage and Punishment. This one was really short. I didn't have a lot of notes on it. It uh, did cover the word of wisdom. Well, I like what you said about uh, the revelations, how he didn't give as many. Yeah. So she points that out. She said he dictated scarcely more than a dozen revelations, although in the previous five years, five year period, he had given out more than 100. So just like she kind of points this out later, she says, just like he had to kind of move away from the seer stone. To see him because the seer was getting too much attention and he wanted the attention on himself as the religious leader. So we had to get rid of that. And so him getting rid of the re- him getting rid of revelations saying, thus saith the Lord puts it back on him. I am speaking for God. Like I don't have to come up with these revelations. So I thought that was a really interesting. Even later on and clear through um, the end of this section that we talk about, he's dealing with the consequences of some of these prophecies for a long time. He was saying the location of Zion and having it be a complete failure affected the church greatly. And there's a lot of things that he said in this time, you know, before Zion's camp that were, you know, in the mouth of God, according to him, that really came back to bite the church. I really like also, and she says that in 1835, Joseph enlarged the priesthood and had a quorum of a 12 and a quorum of 70. And it's interesting to me that the church was organized in 1830. And if we are organizing the church the way Christ did, why is he waiting five or six years later to make these organizations and quorums? Like that doesn't, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. The, the church is going through a rebranding right now where they're talking about ongoing revelation instead of um, everything being established already. And that would jive with this sort of a change where if you want to explain it like that, where it's being revealed and restored piece by piece, that lines up perfectly. But that's not the way that it was taught or presented to me when I was growing up. Whether that's, you know, what the church actually will stand behind today, who knows? Yeah. As you're, you're talking about all, the, all of these quorums being formed, what stood out to me was the nepotism. And that was on page uh, 163 was when she was talking about that. But the majority of the people called to these positions were related to Joseph Smith. Even to the church leaders today, you look at their their family history. Most of the church leaders, even today, can still draw their family lines straight back to Joseph Smith or the other early church leaders. They're keeping this in the family and they have for the last 200 years. One thing that stood out to me is that hearing the stories of William and how Joseph makes him an apostle and no one likes that because William's a very rough around the edges kind of guy and they get into several fights. But he reminds me, he and maybe to some degree, his brother Samuel, who later listens to William, they remind me of Laman and Lemuel and like just that sounds just like Nephi with his brothers. In this time period, about basically for the next three years after Zion's camp, there's there's relative peace, except for this William that you're mentioning. He called Joseph Smith a false prophet on one occasion. He was made to apologize, but if I'm not mistaken, he did eventually get excommunicated. It says that he was forced to resign by the other the other eleven. He was forgiven, and then later was forced to resign. And Joseph made a, a public apology or a public forgiveness letter. It was also in this time that. Uh, the word of wisdom was starting to be codified into um, the leadership, or at least how the leadership was behaving. Um, Sidney Rigdon and the high, the high council, they tried to remove a member from his position named Alman Babbitt uh, because he wasn't following the word of wisdom. When he was defending himself to the high council, he was saying, well, Joseph Smith doesn't follow the word of wisdom either. And the way Brody presents this is it's like this, this whole concept of the word of wisdom was something that, that took a life of its own, that Joseph Smith did, had no power to change the course or um, remove because he had already put it into the words of God. And I like that she kind of calls this a food fad um, about the, the, you know, no tea or coffee, um, kind of vegetarian, less meat. And she says that Joseph was just deferring to the pressures of the time which I thought was really interesting. She says that what I thought was interesting, she says the word of wisdom, which, which today is the best known of all he ever wrote. I thought that was very interesting for her to say that. So maybe she's saying just like the general public. Right. That's what it, like even non-members, I think, know that we don't, don't drink those things or engage in those things. He had so much that he said. And like some of his later sermons were actually like really fascinating. The world at large, even the membership has never read them. They don't know some of the coolest things that Joseph Smith said. Oh, and I thought it was interesting. This 
I think most of the members know about the story of Emma and how they're all spitting tobacco and she's like getting annoyed having me clean it. But that's that's in the Journal of Discourses, which is interesting that the church pulls from the journals when they try to kind of suffocate those as much as they can. They only pull the stories that are faith promoting, which on one hand, you can't blame them. They're, they're not going to try and and uh, destroy somebody's faith to completely deny any of the other stories that are in there isn't isn't good either. In the Journal of Discourse, it also says that hot soup is against the word of wisdom and hot chocolate, which I think is really interesting. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure kind of the science of the time or, or what had influenced this is is they thought that boiling water was bad for you. And so they were trying to avoid anything that had hot water in it. That's all I had for Chapter 11. Yeah, I think that's all I had, too. Yeah. Chapter 12 um, had quite a bit more, actually. This is um, this goes into the Book of Abraham. Brody uh, addressed two main points in this time period of Joseph's life, the translation of the book of Abraham, and then also the introduction of the anointing rituals. The way it actually took place is in just a huge contrast to the way everything happens today. Everything is neat, orderly, and ritualized, but it was much more like a Pentecostal revival than what you would get in a sermon today or even you know in the ordinances that we have today. But we'll get there. So that, that's kind of what Brody uh, talks about in this chapter. What stuck out to me was how was his education and how he always wanted to learn. And she says that his English teacher, C.G. Webb, said that Joseph was the calf that sucked three cows. He acquired knowledge very rapidly. And I think that's very consistent with, with the kind of person he is. And, and he would often incorporate these things that he's learning into the theology. The one thing that stood out to me with the... Um, the manuscript for the book of Abraham, Joseph Smith told Josiah Quincy in 1844 that his mother had purchased these with her own money. But, but at the time he wrote in his journal that it was bought by the saints. So a little discrepancy on, on whether or not it was his mother that purchased it or whether it was the saints that footed the bill. But I had always heard that it was the saints or the church that bought it. I, I had never heard tell that, that, uh, that she might have had a hand in purchasing it. The authenticity of the Book of Abraham was put into question as early as 1861. Yeah. Egyptian, the Egyptian language was already able to be read in French. I don't believe they had published at the time where Joseph Smith is doing this, but I don't believe it had been published into English in Britain quite yet. It was something that people could read contemporaneously with Joseph Smith. He just didn't have access to anybody that would have been able to corroborate what he was saying. So it was the authenticity of this, even though they didn't have the, um, the papyri anymore. In 1861, it was put into question by a student of the Coptic language, um, Theodule de Veria in the Louvre. It's interesting that the authenticity of the book had been in question almost from the beginning of the church. Um, Joseph didn't receive, receive any backlash or whatever from in his lifetime about the book of Abraham. But she said, even if he had, even if people had called him out on it, she said it would have been, it would have been the word of a mere schoolman against the word of God. So they wouldn't, she says they wouldn't have cared. It wouldn't have affected them. Frankly, that's, that's what we see today where those that are, that are believing or, you know, still hold to their belief after finding out some of this information, that's what they're choosing. They're choosing to believe that perhaps the, the scrolls didn't say what Joseph Smith wrote, but it was used as a, a form of medium, just like the seer stone, in order to receive the word of God. And so it's it, just like you said, that's, that's how people are explaining it away today. I also like that she says, the book of Abraham was the most unfortunate thing Joseph ever wrote. Yeah, you could say that for a lot of different reasons. Um, basically, the, the codifying of racism into um, the religion, that was really unfortunate. It was, it was there in the Book of Mormon prior to this, but it wasn't quite so explicit as it is in the book of Abraham. The whole concept of the curse um, is spelled out in the book of Abraham in a way that it isn't in the book of Mormon. Well, I also like that she talks about the divisions in heaven and a third of them. She, which I'd never thought about cause she, cause I know that a third follows Satan, right? But a third follow Christ and also a third are fence sitters. They're just like, we're going to pick the winning side and those are all the descendants of Canaan, like the African race. So like that's, I didn't, I hadn't thought about that. 
I've always wondered, and this is totally a side note, I've always wondered what the church would look like if it were established 100 years before and 100 years later. Like, what would the church look like if it were in the 1730s when it all came about? And what would it look like if it were in the 1930s when it all came about? Wow. I think a lot of these, sorry, my brain is just like all over the place. Um, but when I, when I think about an aspect like this, um, it's prior to the understanding of evolution like we have today and the understanding that skin pigmentation is directly related to how far away your ancestors lived from the equator. I just wonder what the church would have looked like had Joseph Smith known different things or not known other things. Uh, just food for thought. I just, sorry. <laughs> yeah. And Charles Darwin was contemporary with Joseph, Charles Darwin. So Joseph was, I like that she calls him, she uses the word, um, she says he has eclectic habits. And so he would have latched onto these ideas and, and carried them. Now, Darwin's work wasn't widely accepted for a while, but yeah, he was contemporary with Joseph Smith as well. Well, I mean, if it was a hundred years later, if it was in 1930, maybe, maybe it would have been different. The, the temple dedication, the Kirtland Temple, when he introduced the anointing ritual, and this was right after the, the Kirtland Temple was built. So it was two days and two nights. They were in the temple, fasting, praying, prophesying. Like it, it was this, this huge Pentecostal event, this sort of religious experience where they're speaking in tongues, they're doing all sorts of things that you just would not see in the church today. It also feels a little bit occultic to me with with Joseph's treasure digging and he does all of his digging at night and he gets the plates at night. A lot of this temple work is done at night, just exclusively men. And there's chanting, there's anointing of oils, there's there's like even drinking alcohol. Like it's just it just feels very occultic to me. So Brody gives the history of the church, volume two, page uh, 379 for the source for this. So Joseph wrote that they were getting wine and bread to make their hearts glad. And then um, the brothers continued exhorting, prophesying, speaking in tongues until five o'clock in the morning. The Savior made his appearance to some while angels ministered to others. And it was a Pentecost and an endowment indeed long to be remembered. John Coral talks about some of them getting drunk. Yeah. Because she talks about the veils, the, the kind of curtains coming down. And I don't, I never pictured it that way. But like he and Oliver... He and Oliver see the Lord, Moses, Elijah, and Elijah, Elias, which are, which is interesting because they're the same person. Yeah. It's a mistranslation of the same name. But I just never pictured it that way. Cause like in all the artwork, it's like a different room. There's a divider that they can raise and lower to separate into three partitions. And, and I didn't know that about the, the early design. That was all I had for chapter 12. It was kind of a dense one. There was a lot in there, both about the book of Abraham and also the um, Kirtland temple. Chapter 13, if you're ready to, to move ahead. Yeah, yeah. This one covers the time of Fanny Alger. Oliver Cowdery, you know, referred to it as a dirty, nasty affair, which led to his excommunication because he wouldn't um, take back his word on what he saw. Another thing in this chapter was his final treasure dig, which I thought was fascinating. One of the things that, that Brody mentions, and this is on page 182, she says that the, the whole Fanny Alger event um, preceded his revealing of the phrase uh, wives submit to your husbands. And that's um, from doctrine and covenants. Isn't that from doctrine and covenants? I thought so. It, Cause she's saying letter day saints messenger and advocate. It probably made it into doctrine and covenants later regardless. So after this whole thing with Fanny Alger took place and um, as far as details go, we could cover it. Was there anything new you learned from it? No, I've read a lot of Todd Compton, Todd Compton. So yeah, so I was familiar with most most of what they said about Fanny as well. I didn't know, and this is the connection that Brody makes here, was that after this whole event in Joseph Smith's diaries and what he personally wrote, he never really talked about his relationship with Emma much after this. And she she doesn't expound on this a ton, but at the end, when she's saying that he doesn't go into their relationship, he says that the like one of the next prophecies he, he made was that wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. A lot of this concept of women being subservient, I think 
can be directly, and this is what I think Brody is insinuating here, is that it can be directly related to the relationship that Joseph had with Emma. And she didn't say it exactly like that, but the way that she aligned the story, that's that's where my mind went. She does that a lot. She kind of she kind of leads you and then kind of lets you figure it out. Exactly. And I, I love it. I, I, I love her writing style. One of the things now, and this is going completely the opposite direction, and she talks about some of the aspects of the law at the time and how the divorce was just not something that you could do. So when a member of the church, when someone joined the church, but their spouse didn't want to, they would leave them and they would come join the saints, but they couldn't legally get divorced. And so she was talking about some of these aspects as possibly being what sparked the concept of plural marriage, because they, these people couldn't absolve themselves of their prior marriages. And so there needed to be a way to, for them to continue to get married when legally they couldn't or they couldn't get a divorce, which um, for me, when I, when I served in, in Chile, uh, my mission, this, this was actually a problem that they had clear until 2008. It wasn't until, I don't remember the exact date, but it was early 2000s that um, divorce became legal in Chile. And up until that point, the church actually would let people get baptized and become members if they were living with someone they weren't married to. Because it was illegal to wow. get divorced. And so they had made an exception there. I, I always thought that was fascinating that they, they could make exceptions in areas where it was impossible to, to do otherwise. Well, so I also heard that, and I read this before, and I think it's the Journal of Discourses, but don't quote me. Um, I think Joseph was teaching other people that their marriages, if not under, if not done by the prophet or in the church, they were illegal. And I think that was another way around getting having plural marriages. Yeah. And, and I don't know that if it was in this chapter or not, but um, Joseph Smith applied to the state to become uh, to be able to legally marry people. And the state denied him. So he couldn't like actually pr- legally perform marriages. Was it Cowdery? Some, somebody else close to him was able to perform marriages. Brody implied that that was also part of the reason why he would make a statement like that, where it's like, you know, I have the authority. The state can't give me that sort of authority because I already have it. Oh, boy. Which, you know, going to under the banner of heaven. <laughs> it's those same sort of sentiments that that led to um, some of these splinter groups. Anyway. I also I know I noticed that you highlighted this as well, where it says that Brody says that she goes to Joseph F. Smith. Yes, that 184. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she says that um, he asserted Joseph F. Smith asserted to me in 1943 that a revelation foreshadowing polygamy had been written in 1831, but that had never been published. And I don't think he lets her see it at all. Yeah. So what she says is in conformity with the church policy, however, he would not permit the manuscript, which he acknowledged to be in possession of the church library to be examined. That's another one of those things. I, I, I always wonder, like, what is in that vault? Like, yes, just I, like at this point, like, I don't believe. And I study these things because I just have this like fascination with history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, I just would love to read that stuff just to know. Like, I just want to know. Mm-hmm. She also mentioned at this time. So the, the church had accrued some pretty massive debts. And that's going to be a big aspect of the next chapter. In the 1830, I think 1837, is that when when we are right now? I'm trying to remember. In that time period. Anyway, 1836, 1837, Joseph Smith was borrowing money against the properties the church owned and buying and selling land and making a profit off of it. Just seems to track with what the church does today. Yeah, they own like 2% of Florida. Is that right? Something like that? Yeah. One of the things I knew a little bit about them going to Salem, but I hadn't studied it a ton. In this time, Joseph Smith has his final treasure dig, like a closing of the cha- of this chapter of folk magic and treasure digging. But interestingly, he puts the treasure dig into the mouth of God and tells in Doctrine and Covenants 111, has God tell them where to go and look for the money? As with all of the other treasure digs, they came up with nothing. I love that. I, I didn't know treasure digging still went on after the organization of the church. So this is so cool. I, I had heard of this story, but I had never really um, dug into it. And I didn't I didn't know the connection that, that Brody was trying to make here. 
So she was she set up this whole story to, you know, tells about these rumors of this house with gold in, in the basement in Salem. And Joseph Smith um, has a revelation that they're supposed to go out there and that this money is going to pay off all the debts of the church. They go out there and they don't get anything. They come back um, empty handed. To me, that you mentioned that you think Joseph is a true believer. And it, this sort of feels like that. Like he must actually believe that this is going to happen or else why would he say that? I kind of am on the fence the later it goes in his life of whether he believed or not anymore. I tend to think that he did, but some of the decisions that he make that he makes later on in the story, I just it just is so hard for me to think that he did some of the things he did while believing he was inspired of God. But for the most part, I do think that he was. So let's jump into the last chapter in this chapter 14. I'm going to have to reread this one because there was a lot that I didn't catch the first time through, but it was it was fascinating. This one was called Disaster in Kirtland, and this was uh, she covered the Kirtland Safety Society. One of the first things that jumped out to me is uh, Joseph Smith made a prophecy about the Kirtland Safety Society, and he said that it would basically gobble up all of the other banks like it would become the bank that everybody used. It was denied a license before they even publicized it to the public. Uh, January 1st of 1837, they start, they open this bank and they start um, trying to publicize it to the people in Kirtland. But Ohio had already denied them their license to operate. I like that it says there were boxes in the bank vault. They were each labeled $1,000. And she says, actually, these boxes were filled with sand. She's quoting somebody, sand, lead, old iron, stone, and combustibles. And each had a layer, each had a layer of 50 cent silver coins, which, which I thought was super interesting. Yeah, well, they had to they had to have something in there to give to give their notes value. And so they just made it look like they had something when they didn't. Mm-hmm. The first thing that Joseph that Joseph does when he opens this bank is he goes and pays off all the debts of the church with banknotes that he prints from the, the Kirtland Safety Society, which d- they did later default because um Almost from the beginning, the the people that he owed money to in the East, they, they didn't accept these banknotes. Like, honestly, if you're just going to if you're going to only read one chapter, this might be the chapter to read. It is so dense with information and it is it is really this is one of those moments where even the most active believing member is not going to be able to reconcile the events as they transpired, everything that happened. It just it's just really not good. That doesn't mean, you know, for those believers that might that might be listening, doesn't mean the church isn't true. It just means that that the leaders of the church made a huge mistake here. So Brody goes and she totals all the debts and all the people that basically sued the Kirtland Safety Society after it went and it totaled to $150,000. Now if you calculate that, the the value of the dollar has basically gone up like 3,000 percent since then so the total if we're going to say today's money it's 500 million dollars that they owed and it's just wild she also says that joseph was arrested seven times in four months that there were 13 lawsuits against him which you just i just didn't i never heard that before yeah well those 13 lawsuits those are the ones that total up to that 500 million right we're always told that he gets arrested a lot he's in and out of prison but we're never told why we're told that, you know, it's these evil people conspiring against him, but it's no, he owed $500 million to people. That's why he was getting arrested. I was going to say, she says Heber C. Kimball or Heber Kimball was probably not exaggerating much when he said that at this time, quote, there were not 20 persons on earth that would declare that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. It was a huge mistake and it's a glaring red flag to his authenticity as a prophet. Well, one thing, I guess, in a faithful view, didn't she say that a lot of banks tanked after this as well? A lot of banks did tank after this, at least for me, the way I would look at this and the difference that I would that I would note is that they were operating without a license and they were they were just doing this themselves and they were printing money. So these banks that also defaulted, they were operating legally and they were running into problems. Joseph Smith was operating illegally and they were running into problems. That's true. That's good to point out. Good for you to point out that a lot of other banks did. Um, There was a crash in 1837. that That's when a lot of this went down. A lot of members were disaffected at this time and they were leaving. As they were leaving, Joseph Smith would threaten to excommunicate anyone that brought a lawsuit against the church. 
Oh, wait. she also talks about this young girl that she doesn't seem to name who was a CRS and people like David Whitmer, Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery had faith in her seer stones. What page was that? Oh, sorry. 205. And so a lot of people were following her and he had to like silence her pretty quickly. They had like a like a town hall meeting in the temple. Um, this is page 207 for those that have it at home. They were trying to debate what to do about um, Joseph Smith and the, uh, the Safety Society. It, the way Brody described it is a, a bitter fight as charges and countercharges were hurled back and forth between those that were disaffected and wanted to sue the church and those that were on Joseph Smith's side. So and these were members of the church. And so Joseph Smith, he's, he ends this debate and he shouts he, he's because he has lost control of the discussion. And he shouts that they would vote on excommunication of all of these members of the church. And then one of the dissenters yelled out, you would cut a man's head off and hear him afterward. I just really like the way that that's said. They were going to place a judgment or the way that Joseph Smith was trying to handle the situation. He was placing a judgment and he was going to kick them out before anybody in the community had heard the problems that they were putting forward. I feel like this might be off topic or not very no, relevant, ahead. but I feel like the church sort of does that now still. They'll excommunicate someone and then hear them as in like, like uh, with Bill Real, like they'll finally post the gospel topics essays or they'll finally come out and say things. They'll finally put little windows in the bishopric, bishopric doors um, from Sam Young. Like there's just a bunch of, yeah. It goes back to what Brody was saying much earlier is that the church is reactionary. Nothing that they do is preemptive to any sort of problem. Um, you know, they're not putting those windows on the doors before any sexual allegations take place. They're not shutting down the bank before all of the banks go, you know, go under. Everything that they do is in reaction to something else. They cut off the head and then they make changes. You know, they excommunicate Joan Dolan or Bill Real, and then they release the gospel topics essays. Right. Was there anything else that you had on chapter 14? Um, I didn't highlight a whole lot of things. So what are your thoughts on this? The second uh, section of the book where we've gone through chapter eight to 14. What's the, what's your, your biggest takeaway from this part? Well, it sort of feels like Joseph's getting a taste for power and he's doing all these different things. He, they talk a lot about the ranking, or at least that's what I noticed that he changes the high, pre his title as, First elder, is that what he called himself mm -hmm. to to the president? So he's like getting a taste and like, I don't know if she'll go into this later, but Joseph later ordains himself as king. Yeah. Yeah. So he's just and he doesn't really know what to do. He keeps like messing up or the saints make their own decisions and he can't. He's out of control. He was trying everything and sticking with whatever worked. And he wasn't afraid to make mistakes. I mean, he made huge mistakes. but then. You know, somehow he built this massive church that's still around today. And it's, it's precisely for what you're saying. He's, he's trying everything and then sticking with whatever works. And somehow he's never punished severely for any of the mistakes that he did. I don't know. I think that's what differentiates him from any of the other uh, religious uh, reformationists from the time. Well, when you said not punished, I was thinking, well, he was eventually punished when he was killed. But that's true. But even you could see that as not a punishment because he's solidifying his propheticness inside this martyr. Well, he had people follow him clear to the end, even through the events like the Kirtland Safety Society. Like you could easily, you know, if, if you're looking at any sort of other organization and, you know, you put them in the exact same events, like it would be so believable to say that it would not keep going for another 200 years. With everything that happened, like it, it should not be around today, but it is. And, and I, I think it's, it's precisely this, like whenever he did have a, a big mistake or a big problem, he found a way to overcome it. You know, if, if there's a believer listening to this or reading this book, I mean, you could take some inspiration from this determination that he had to always succeed, even when everything was going poorly for him. Yeah, that's a very good point. Like he's very successful. This church is still going and it is huge. So thanks again for sticking around. This is another longer one than I normally make. We've gone through chapters eight through 14 of No Man Knows My History. The next time we get together, we're going to go from chapters 15 to 21. 
I think this is where we're going to dig a lot deeper into the practice of polygamy. It will be a fascinating section to go over. So if you're reading along at home, we're going to get back together and in mid-June, we'll release the next episode where we talk about the next section of the book. Thank you so much, Julia, for coming on and, and being a part of this. Is there anything you want to plug, anything that you're working on that you want the listeners to go check out? Oh, no, I don't think so. This is just a really great book. And and I love, I, again, the active members of the church will will still recommend this book. This is, she has, she does have her biases, but this is very accurate. And don't, don't shy away from it just because it's labeled as anti. Well, that's, that's one of the hardest things too, is to, to find members that are willing to engage with material that is considered anti. And I, I'm trying my hardest to exist in that sort of a space. And I do, I do have a, a handful of active believing members that um, shoot me messages occasionally. And it's, it's fascinating to have those discussions with somebody who's aware of these issues and aware of the real history, but can also come out on the other side of that faithfully. You know, I don't hold any judgments that you know, people can believe what they want to believe. And so can I. And I, I think it's, it's fascinating to have these discussions with someone who disagrees with you. And to, to learn about their rationale or their reasoning for coming to the opposite conclusion. Mm-hmm. Julia, you didn't say it, but I'll say it. Your, um, your channel on TikTok is Analyzing Mormonism, on YouTube, Analyzing Mormonism. You just started a podcast, if I'm not mistaken. Is it also Analyzing Mormonism? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as good as yours. Like we're kind of just goofing around. <laughs> but... I'm just goofing around. I feel so rambly. Half the episodes I put them out and I'm like, I don't even know what I said in that one. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I haven't listened to it yet, but I promise before we get together next time, I'll listen to what you've got published and I will recommend it again to the listeners. Oh, maybe not quite so much. <laughs> it's, it's not that great. <laughs> you know, if you're having fun, I'm sure the listeners will have fun with it too. Yeah, we're having a blast, so I'm going to keep doing it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for sticking around through the entire episode. I do apologize. This last week, I've been dealing with some microphone issues. So I apologize that the audio quality on my end wasn't as, as high as it typically is. Everything should be fixed, and from here on out, it should be back to the normal quality. And with that... I hope that you have an excellent day.